Our guest this week grew up in the Bronx, New York, currently lives in Sonoma Valley, California, and is a pianist and composer specializing in Brazilian jazz. She started studying classical piano as a young girl and began attending the children's program at Manhattan School of Music at age 11. Our guest has a BA in piano performance from the University of Michigan School of Music, and she also wrote for, acted in, and directed a feminist theater group at the university. She's been playing and performing since childhood, and since moving to California, she's performed at many of the major Bay Area venues, also the San Jose Jazz Festival, and she's headlined the Healdsburg Jazz Festival with the Grammy-winning Brazilian jazz icon, Lenny Andrade. Our hardworking guest is also the music director for both a synagogue and a Christian church. And, lucky for us, she happens to be a great storyteller. Her effervescent, joyful personality infuses her music in all that she does. We are so thrilled to welcome our guest, Stephanie Ozer. Welcome to Meaningful Musical Conversations, where we have heart-to-heart talks about music and life. I'm Jill Minier. I'm Daniel Townsend. Hope you're all doing well. Again, thanks for uh, joining us today on this lovely, rainy sort of afternoon today. We have Stephanie Ozer here in the building. Thank you so much for coming out. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank Thank you you for making it all the way out this long and windy road, right? It was a beautiful drive. Oh, good. Especially seeing some mist and some rain. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of spooky. Very Halloween-y. Yes. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Yes, you've come all the way from Sonoma Valley. Mm -hmm. Yes. Is that like an hour drive about? It was about an hour drive. And it was just great. Wonderful. I could go slowly. I wasn't in a hurry. Great. Well, Stephanie, I know that you are from the Bronx, and I just kind of want to jump in and um, hear a little bit about how you grew up. Um, Like, what was music like in in your home, for example? I grew up in something called the Amalgamated Cooperative Houses in the Bronx, um, it was built, uh, it was a series of apartment buildings and playgrounds and a community center mm-hmm. that was built for middle-class families after World War II. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of pre, pre-condominium where you, you bought a little, very inexpensively into an apartment and basically um, you got to live there and maintenance was done. And so we lived on the ninth floor and walking distance to both subways, which I started riding when I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a wonderful place to grow up. It was a real community where you knew all the kids and all the parents. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a largely Jewish neighborhood on one side and Irish Catholic on the other. Mm -hmm. And I just, um, music was a big part of my life from the get-go. My parents are not musicians, but they're music lovers. Mm. And there was always music on in the house, whether it was Ella Fitzgerald. My mother was really into jazz. I remember her ironing, playing Art Tatum records, (laughs) um, or opera she listened to on Sunday. But also my mother was very interested in what she called what the college kids were listening uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. And I remember when she came home and brought a Simon and Garfunkel album oh, home. Yeah. And I was, 
young and brought a Beatles album home and brought a Joan Baez and she just said, this is what the kids are listening to. And I had shown an early aptitude for music. Mm-hmm. And so I would just, I had my own little record player when I was really young and I would just listen to all kinds of music, folk, rock, um, classical, jazz. And I started piano lessons when I was seven because mm-hmm. I would go to their friends' houses, and that was the days when everybody had a piano in their house. And I would just go over to the piano and apparently pick things out. So we got a little Wurlitzer upright in our in my bedroom that I shared with my sister and my parakeet <laughs> and started piano lessons with the woman across the street. And she taught me a mixture of some classical, but I remember doing... Fly Me to the Moon, and she kind of put some poppy, jazzy chords into it. Mm-hmm. And I was so smitten wow. by the different sounds yeah. while I was playing Bach and Beethoven. Mm-hmm. It was also the, one of the few times that I was allowed privacy mm-hmm. in my teeny tiny apartment was when I played the piano. People would leave me alone. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was a lot. It was a very noisy New York household, mm-hmm. to put it nicely. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did they end up leaving you alone? I mean, did did they? How did that happen? Well, because it wasn't when, true in my household. But uh, well, it, the, at first the, I had an upright piano in, in our bedroom, and so everybody would not come into the bedroom. Mm-hmm. There was only it was a two bedroom apartment, including my sister. Mm-hmm. So when I was practicing. It was sacred space. Wow. Nobody came in the room. Mm-hmm. When the, when we got a grand piano, the Steinway that I still have, wow. into the living room, people would leave me alone in the living room. Uh, so even though I could hear all the activity going on in the rest of the apartment, I was left alone. Beautiful. Um, and so it was kind of a save, savior for me because mm-hmm. there was a lot of angst and mm-hmm. arguing and... Um, intensity in the household. So it was kind of a way to go into myself. And of course, once I started uh, riding the subways, I was going to Manhattan School of Music on Saturday in Harlem, Mm -hmm. 125th Street in Harlem, where I was taking theory and ear training lessons starting when I was 10 or 11 years old. (laughs) And Again, I loved it because I got to go to the big city, you know, from the Bronx. I take the number one train down to 125th Street and Broadway, and it wasn't particularly safe, Mm -hmm. so I had to learn some city coping skills, and I was tiny, Mm -hmm. so I learned how to look mean and scary. um, But I loved getting out into the city and going to Manhattan School of Music. Oh, my goodness. So they had a a children's program? It was a children's program, yeah. Yeah, it was called the Preparatory Division. Mm -hmm. And they often had college grad students teaching Mm -hmm. the classes. You know, maybe they got an extra stipend or extra credit. So I remember we had these... And I was talking to a very dear friend I met, Elena, who is a piano teacher in New York. She's still in New York. We met when we were 10 at in the lobby of Manhattan School of Music, which at that time actually was Juilliard. I'm sorry, it was Juilliard School of Music. Juilliard moved and Manhattan School of Music moved in. Um, <clears throat> and we had this book called Folk Song Sight Singing Real Book. 
where they were like folk songs from around the world, but you have to sight read them and sing them at a very young age. And they were beautiful, odd, modal melodies. So there were just, there were some, and it was in this old building and it was, you know, in Harlem. It was, it was, it was fun. Yeah, magical That's amazing. Place. <laughs> I'm blown away. Oh my gosh. How fortunate. What a, what a wonderful thing. It was wonderful. It, it really, it, it really was wonderful. And I, there was a woman there, the late Cynthia Auerbach, and she put on children's operas every year where she'd have the college division doing the orchestra, you know, being the orchestra and all the kids uh, being in the opera. So we did Rav, a Ravel opera called L'Enfant et les Sortilèges, uh, which was about a magical kingdom. And so I'm, I was singing tenor at the time because I still have a low voice. So I was singing all these beautiful Ravel harmonies when I was, you know, preteen and teenager. We did Benjamin Britten. We did all these operas. And they were professional productions because it was at the college with a college orchestra. And she was a maniac (laughs) and got costumes. And so I got the bug for performing pretty early. Wow. So did you did you have recitals too? Did you? Yes, I had piano recitals all the time. Um, How did you feel about them? How was it for you to to perform in recitals? I <clears throat> liked performing. I would get nervous as 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 heck. I mean, I you know, and I still do. Before a show, I get nauseous and I get like, "Why do I do this? You know, I hate this." <laughs> but <it's, laughs> but uh, you know, I know I know I've done it enough times that I know, you know, just let me get through the first five minutes and then I'll, you know. Or settle. Settle when my hands stop shaking and I stop sweating so much. Um, So that's how recitals were. But I always felt like I could settle into the music and let it flow through me. In fact, when I was pretty young, um, I remember listening to people talk about John Coltrane on the radio WBAI in New York, mm-hmm. which is the was is like the sister or the brother station to KPFA. Okay. Um, at that time, you know, it was the mid '60s. Um, there was just a lot of philosophical discussions and political discussions on the radio and cool music. And I would just I was a night owl at insomnia, so I would stay up late listening to the radio. And I don't remember if it was John Coltrane, but I was hearing people talk about music as a spiritual vehicle. And I immediately, it was like, yes, that's how I feel. And I was, you know, 10, 8. And I remember my favorite classical composer was and still is Bach. Mm -hmm. And I always felt this affinity with Bach. I could just lose myself in it. And I remember playing the piano in the living room and feeling like, oh my God, it's coming through me. It's not, I, I, I really had a sensation of the music kind of coming from elsewhere and channeling it through my fingers. And all I had to do was stay with it wow. and be with it. Mm. And it was an amazing moment or series of moments. I don't remember if it was just one time, but I just kind of knew that whenever I performed that that was the state I aimed 
to align myself with, of just being the music, being the vehicle, being the conduit. Um, And not to say that my personal interpretation wasn't a factor, Mm -hmm. but that it was a partnership with some kind of something flowing through me. Mm -hmm. And... Well, as you as you talk about that, I'm just you know imagining you right now sitting uh, at the piano at Hotel Healdsburg, um, with all of this energy flowing through you. And for me, you are just um, there's so much joy that comes through, you know, your body, your being through the through the music. I mean, John and I, my husband and I, we're we're always just um, kind of entranced and just so delighted and uplifted by listening to you. And, you know, so I really just want to say I really feel that coming, coming through you, that energy. It's strong and it's powerful and it's bright and sparkly and it's like, I love it. So Thank you so very much um, to hear you. that you're <laughs> experiencing that as the listener because I didn't know, I'm not aware of... Mm how I look or, I mean, my husband's always telling me to smile more. So I've been trying, <laughs> trying to do that. And, um, because I get so into it that I, it's not that I feel serious, but you know, you get that kind of look of concentration yes. on your face. Oh yeah. Um, and it can look very serious and mm-hmm. solemn almost. Um, so it's nice to hear that you're picking up the love oh, yeah. and the joy. Oh God. Yeah. And yeah. especially at a club gig, yeah. you know, right. where, um, there's noise, and yeah, there you is, know, there can be a lot of noise. There There's, can be a lot of noise. It's not a concert setting where where right. it's so crystal quiet that you you're, you're both heightened and more nervous, but also just more whatever, yes. more mm-hmm. more present, more able to tap into the essence of what you're doing. Right, because you have the support of this listening presence of the audience. Exactly, so but somehow just, I feel at a hotel, a hotel mm-hmm. Healdsburg could be because I've been there for 18 years when it started doing music and it's just become a second, it's become a home for me. And I have built up a following over those many years and have also been a headliner at the Hillsburg Jazz Festival. Wow, fantastic. And so it just, you know, I feel completely like Hillsburg is a home to me, even though I don't live in Hillsburg. Yeah, right. Wonderful, God. (laughs) Yeah, you play, I've seen you play with Peter Barche on bass and and Kendrick Freeman on yes. drums. Yes. And I think I saw you with Fabiana Passoni. You did. Oh my gosh, yeah. Beautiful Brazilian singer. Just she's my experience of her. She's just oh my gosh. Um so natural. Um you know, just free and there's this sense of joy that I really felt coming from her as well. She is ex- you describe her exactly. You know, and she's she's sensual, she's moving around and she's she just it's like she's just having such a great time. Mm-hmm. And that just, you know, we all feel that. Yeah. So. yeah, I love performing with her. She comes from a very <clears throat> small village in Brazil in Minas in the state of Minas Gerais. And a very small country thing. And she always, she learned to sing from her dad. And she always wanted to come to the United States and be a singer. And Mm -hmm. she came here when she was very young, spoke no English, moved to New York, and eventually made her way to L.A. and taught herself English. And she's really a remarkable person. And we hooked up in 2006. When was I... On tour, it was 2007 maybe, 
when I was on tour with Lenny Andrade. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I read you, this. I read on your website. Actually, did I I'd love to hear the story. Actually, oh, you could tell the story mm-hmm. about. Yes, I will. Um, um, after. Yeah, well, this is, this, we, we met at the tour with her, but okay. to, to, to get up to that point, um, I had gone to, uh, this was 2000, I, we had just moved from Michigan where I was living in Ann Arbor and had a whole music career there uh, in, in jazz and pop and did a lot of folk. I worked with a folk singer, singer songwriter. I basically like to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't done much country western, but mm-hmm. ever, just about everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, songwriting, and didn't we? We moved here in in uh, the summer of '97, and I didn't know a soul. And we were living in Glen Ellen at the time, which is a very small rural offshoot of Sonoma and heard about the jazz school in Berkeley and through I started taking uh, going down there on Saturdays and studying with a wonderful uh, piano professor teacher Mark Levine and he turned me on to something called Jazz Camp West mm-hmm. which is a week-long uh, jazz camp immersion in the Redwoods uh, south of San Francisco and La Honda at a YMCA camp. So I went there in 2000 and was looking through the list of classes, and there's about 100 classes, and there was one on Brazilian Brazilian jazz. And I remember when I was 10 years old, and I was in the country of upstate New York, and heard, you know, that was about 1966, when a lot of the Brazilian music mm. was coming over to the United States during those Carnegie Hall concerts and Jobim and Girl from Ipanema. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't know what it was. <clears throat> I just, I, but I, I was absolutely fixated on it. And that summer, one of the older women who was a great piano player taught me Girl from Ipanema. <laughs> And I remember being, you know, 10 years old and playing Mozart and Bach and I just could not get over the harmonies of it. And it it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever played. And then you flash forward to here I am in California in 2000 and I see this class in Brazilian jazz and I take it and it's an ensemble class. So Mm -hmm. there's vocalists and instrumentalists and keyboardists and there's a huge room set up with all these instruments and the teacher was Marcos Silva who became my mentor who is from Rio and is um, an extraordinary uh, jazz pianist, composer, teacher, um, intense Mm -hmm. and um, took this summer week-long class with him and by the end of the week I was had decided that I had to play this music, that I had to become a student of this music. And up until that point, I'd been, you know, kind of dabbling in everything. I mean, I'd been playing jazz. I'd been in a rock band, in a fusion band, in a wedding band, doing classical, and just kind of being a general piano player. Mm -hmm. And I had also started, I had taken a Cuban workshop Mm. with Chucho Valdez in um, Canada a few years before, so I'd really gotten into... Montunos and and salsa music, but I knew that it was actually really hard on my fingers because mm. it's really loud and mm-hmm. hard. So I loved it, but when I took this Brazilian class, I felt like I'd found my wow. second calling. Yeah. So I dove into it, 
and ended up joining a, a band uh, the, a year later and studying with Marcos, driving down to Berkeley every Wednesday night <laughs> for about 11 years. Oh, my goodness. Studying with him. Wow. Um, and a few years into it, in 2003, so I'd only been two or three years, so I was a real beginner. We had to use up some of my husband's frequent flyer miles, so we went to Brazil. We went to Rio, and I had already at that point had listened to a ton of Brazilian music and had my favorites, and my favorite singer at the time was a singer named Lenny Andrade, who is kind of like the Sarah Vaughan of Brazil. She, she also loves American jazz, so she mm -hmm. does incredible Brazilian samba and bossa nova, but she loves to scat, mm. and she loved... So that was not always the case with Brazilian singers. And I had a bunch of her CDs, and by being friends with Marcos and having gone to jazz camp and, and, and Brazil camp also, which is another camp, I had a few contacts, and they gave me some suggestions of where to go and who to hook up with. And so we get to, we get to Rio, and... We get off the airplane, and I hear this amazing bossa nova music, and I think, how wonderful they're piping in. Mm -hmm. It's not Muzak, you know. It's wow. I'm step. You here we are in Jobim International <laughs> Airport, totally. and I'm hearing a trio, and we turn the corner, and it's not piped in. It's live. Uh, wow. So there's a live, and I just thought, welcome to Rio. So we stayed right in Ipanema, and. We immediately were like, okay, let's go out and hear music. And my hope was, you know, maybe I'll be able to sit in at a club or play my one or two songs. So we, we find a concert that Lenny Andrade is doing. It's right before carnival preparation when everything, when the city gets crazy because everyone's preparing for carnival. It was, you know, a few weeks before all that gets started. So a lot of musicians are playing in little clubs. Mm -hmm. So she was playing just with her piano player in some club, and we went down to the club, and there were about 40 people in there. It was not, you know, we were the only people that spoke English. There was a table of women from Argentina, and, mm -hmm. and Lenny, and I'm just blown away that I get to see her live, because mm -hmm. she's one of my heroes, and she starts singing, and she starts reciting poetry while her piano player is playing underneath her, and tears start running down our faces. I didn't know what she was saying, but it didn't matter. And she started singing all these songs that I had listened to. And most of the people in the room started singing along with her. And I'm, I'm watching and studying the piano player who plays just like my teacher Marcos. And I'm in love with this style of playing. And my husband leans over to me and says, after the show... We're going to go backstage <laughs> and ask Lenny if she'd like to record with you while we're here in Rio. Oh, my God. That's reasonable. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, shut the F up. I'm trying to enjoy myself. Oh, my God. And he, you know, because I, I, was, I was just like nervous just yeah. being yeah. audience. Yeah. And he said, well, you have three songs to decide. I'm doing it anyway. You can decide if you want to join me. <laughs> and I knew Talk he was going to. Yeah, yeah. I knew he was going to do it. Yeah. So. So for the rest of the concert, I was, you know, my heart rate was up. But mm. we, we go backstage and there's the guy blocking the door mm -hmm. and nobody speaks English really. So in our broken, well, he, he actually studied more Portuguese to, to 
to get there than I did, says, you know, we'd like to say hello to Lenny. And he says, well, are you friends of hers? And we said, no. And he goes, okay, and opens <laughs> the door, Now, which would never happen in the United States, right? You wouldn't even get to the door. So um, there's Lenny, and I'm starstruck. And my David starts saying, this is my wife. And we mentioned Marcos, because Marcos used to play with her in Rio. Mm-hmm. And she, we just locked eyes, and she said, um, well, I have an idea, you know, I have an idea. Why don't I pick you up on Friday and you come to my studio in Nitaroi, which is across the bay, and you try out the piano and see if you like it, hmm. which was her way of saying, who the heck are you and I need to hear you play, yeah. right? But she was being so generous about it, mm-hmm. not saying, well, who are you? you right, right. Oh, how did you think you can? So I think, well... If this is where it starts and ends, I'm I can I'm yes. the, oh, yeah. I'm good. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the hotel, and the next day we rent a keyboard um, <laughs> because I thought, well, if this is going to happen, you know, I said, David, you go down to Ipanema and watch the girls on the beach. <laughs> you go watch the girls from Ipanema, and I'm you know. So we're ordering this piano in broken Portuguese. Yeah. Get the piano up to the hotel room. We at that point, this is all before. Um, this is 2003, mm-hmm. so you had faxing. There oh, right, wasn't, pe- right. you know, you yeah, couldn't yeah, yeah. email things sure. and print them. So we uh, we get music faxed just in case. And she said, call me in a couple of days. We call her in a couple of days. She says, call me tomorrow. And I'm thinking, okay, it's, it's not going to happen. Right, right. Plus we're only there for 10 days and this is already day five. We, we get her on the phone and she says, I'm coming tomorrow at three. I'll pick you up at the hotel. She shows up, we're sitting in the car and she's giving us this tour of Rio and uh, we hop out and I get a picture of she and I uh, with um, the background of of the mountain and thinking, you know, whatever. And she's putting (laughs) in CDs of when she played with Sting and when she played with this person. I'm just... I can't believe it. It's a dream. You know, I'm just thinking, oh my God, Lenny Andraji is giving us a tour. And we're laughing and talking. We get to Fabio's up this little narrow street, and it's this tiny little studio. And she goes, okay, play. So um, I start to play the first song that I learned, which is called Rio, which is a song she made that she made famous that I was studying with. Mm-hmm. in Berkeley. Yeah. So I start playing it, just the groove part. Mm-hmm. And she starts smiling and she said, you don't play like an American, you play like a Brazilian. What should we record? Oh Whoa. my God. <laughs> and I was still a novice, but she could tell that I had the yeah. spirit. Yeah. So yeah. we put together, uh, you know, I I had a limited repertoire, mm-hmm. very limited repertoire. Mm-hmm. So I named some songs that I knew, and she calls up the composers, Ivan Lins and Edu Lobu, who you know live their best friend, you know, and these you know these are my heroes. And she's like, I need the can you can I come by and pick up the CD so I can learn this song? And oh, Ivan is out of town, but I can go pick up this and that because she was yeah. going to learn my repertoire. Oh my goodness, wow! So we end up, uh, and then she said, Do you want? bass and drums because it was just going to, mm-hmm. and I said, oh, 
Sure. <laughs> and so she calls up. She said, they play with Yvonne Lintz. They're very good. Oh, Trust me. Right? I'm like. Yes, I got it. You yeah. just, you know. Yeah. So the next night they show up and they spoke even less English. Sweetest guys. Ed Velton Silva, the drummer and... Um, What's his name? I'm blanking his name. It'll come to me. Mm -hmm. And the sweetest guys, but we didn't, uh, it wasn't a fancy studio and we were all in different rooms. And the only way to see each other was for me to stand up because there was a mirror, but I really couldn't see the drummer at all. Mm -hmm. And we're all in separate rooms. And oh, so we're, okay. I'm trying to explain the, you know, the chart, yeah. but it's all grunts and this and that. Yeah. But I, anyway, we started recording mm -hmm. at midnight. Because the Brazilians take their time, you have to drink coffee for four hours. Mm -hmm. So they all, we got there at seven. I was ready at seven o five, and David said, "Chill, we're in Rio." <laughs> so Lenny's regaling us with stories about her incredible life, living in Mexico, working with Bill Evans. I mean, just on and on. And I'm in the pi piano room right. practicing because mm -hmm. I was just like a nervous wreck. Yeah. At midnight, she goes, "Okay." Let's go. <laughs> so we start at midnight and it's about 3.30 in the morning and we hadn't done Rio yet and I really wanted to do Rio and it was getting, it was getting late. Mm -hmm. And she, I said, could we do Rio? And she said, sure. So we do Rio. Um, and I, I felt, you know, it was one of those things in life, I'm sure you've had similar things where you just don't have the time to get really nervous. And, you know, there's, mm -hmm. if I'd had to think about this for weeks or months, I would have been just a lot less prepared in some mm -hmm. ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. I just had a go on pure, here's who I am at this moment. Here's yeah. what I have at this mm -hmm. moment. And I'm being held by these extraordinary genius talents and we're holding each other mm -hmm. and they're making me sound great. And, you know, and I remember going out onto the, the the deck of Fabio's and it was, you know, just before dawn and the, I could hear the monkeys and the sounds of the jungle and just seeing the lights of Rio across the bay. And I was just, <laughs> what is happening? Am I here with Lenny Andrade? You know, and then we drive home. Uh, Lenny's driving us home. And as we get to Ipanema, you see the sun rising over the ocean. And I'm imagining the credits rolling down, <laughs> the, the sun rising. Yeah. And, because it was just you know, surreal. Yeah. And then David said, well, you, want it? you can smell the bakeries and the baked mm. bread starting to, everybody starting to wake. And David said, you want to go to the beach? I said, I'm, hitting the, I'm going to bed. Yeah. So he walked on the beach and I just you know, hit the bed and fell asleep. And the next night we did a little touch-ups with her voice and we were leaving the following day. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was like the last mm -hmm. two days. And she said, I'm driving you to the airport. You know, we're... And um, her manager, I, I asked her at one point, what made you yeah. decide to, to do this? She said, my manager said, you don't know this American girl and, you know, and Lenny in her accent said, I, I like her. Mm. I like her and I like her hair. <laughs> <laughs> so she just, and then she said, whatever you want to do, you can do whatever you want with this CD. Oh, it's, God. you know, I, so we get back. Meanwhile, on the, on the plane, there was this three hour layover and we had the rough mix. 
So we're playing it for all these Brazilians on the plane and everybody's oh hugging and kissing and because oh everyone gosh. knows who Lenny is. Course, it yeah. was just a party on the oh plane. I mean, it was just, you know, it was, it was amazing. And when I got back to the United States, I finished the CD with Mary Fettig mm -hmm. on flute and sax, mm -hmm. who is the finest in the Bay Area. She played in Stan Kenton's orchestra when she was 19. She was the first female. And her son, Scott, uh, Scott Thompson, mm -hmm. who is Brazilian musician extraordinaire, and uh, a guy named Phil Thompson who lives up in Oregon now, who's an amazing drummer, and Randy Vincent on mm -hmm. guitar, just a few other people. And we, filled, we, we did the six other tracks. I had four with Lenny, and then we added things to those tracks. And about another year or two later, Jessica Felix brought Lenny here for us to headline at the Hillsburg Jazz Festival. And then we went down to L.A., and that's where I met Fabiano. Oh, okay. <laughs> Winded our yeah. way back to she came to the Jazz Bakery, and, and she had grown up in Brazil with Lenny as her, the person she wanted to be when she grew up. Wow. So that's how we met. Wow. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that I know is that a was killer, a long story. That was a killer I know. story. That was an entire movie. Oh my god! Just I know. Taking us through the whole thing. Exactly. Whoa. You can't plan those things. No. Amiga branca e nua É sol, é sal, é sul São mãos se descobrindo e tanto azul Por isso é que o meu rio da mulher beleza Acaba num instante com qualquer tristeza Meu rio que não dorme porque não se cansa Meu rio que balança Sorriu, 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 sorriu orchestrated so that, that, so that cool. all started from flight points mileage like the reason you went on that trip in the first place was just to use my some husband had years ago he had worked for um a corporation mm -hmm. and had had to fly a lot yeah. and his miles were about to expire so we had a lot of miles and we had young kids at home mm -hmm. and we're never going to get away so mm -hmm. his his mother bless her heart my mother-in-law uh said, why don't, I'll watch the kids. 
so that you can go, mm. right? Because that was the only way. I mean, my son was uh, five and, you know, in kindergarten. So um, we we originally were going going to go to Paris or somewhere mm-hmm. like that. Because we, you know, David said, well, there's a lot of Brazilian music there. And then we were like, why don't we go to Brazil? <laughs> Even though, you know, so, so mm. we had enough to, to do it. Mm. So that's why we went there. And, um, well, yeah, actually, I tried to um, listen to that album, but it looks like it's not on Spotify or anything like that. So we it's need to not, purchase it, which is no, actually I great. will give you, yes. No, no, good for it's you. It's on CD Baby. I'm going to get, oh, it's, okay. okay, yes. so I'll order it from And, there. you know, I need to get it on Spotify and all of that, and I, th- because I, I really want to. And it's, I, you know, it's it stood the te- uh, test of time. It's old for me now, mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to, I plan to do another CD, but I can still listen to it and mm-hmm. go, wow, you know, it's it still mm-hmm. holds up, even oh, though, of yeah. course, I like to think I've gotten better in those years. Yes. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Well, thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm thinking about um, this trio that you have now with Fabiana. And it's so Fabiana on vocals and you're, you're on piano. And then we've got Amy Molinari-Hart on percussion. Right. Well, the trio is no longer. Oh, okay. Um, but it was for three years mm-hmm. and it was a blast. Mm-hmm. It was, um, we had a great time and we also did an LA tour and went up to Oregon and per- played in um, the jazz station in Eugene, mm. which was really fun. Um, but we... Our just lives were, you know, we we all had so much going on and it's a lot to do a trio Mm -hmm. because you're really exposed. There was no bass. There was no trap set. And Amy's a great percussionist, but it's very bare. Mm -hmm. And as a piano player and having to do the solos and having to cover the bass, it was very challenging. And so it was a very... um, rehearsal heavy mm-hmm. need. Mm-hmm. So it was great while it lasted. Mm-hmm. And now I perform, um, Fabia and I, Fabiana and I either perform together as a trio with Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Nice. So we have drums, piano and voice yeah. or with a band setting. Mm-hmm. And I've hired her to perform with my band mm-hmm. uh, at Healdsburg and uh-huh. hopefully we'll do a, a show there um, this winter. Nice. And... So, and then she hires me. So we still perform together, but it's when we can. Yes. And I've also worked, I, I actually had a wonderful gig recently at the San Jose Jazz Festival oh, yeah. with uh, Masha Campagna, mm-hmm. who is a wonderful singer of Brazilian music. Mm-hmm. And I've played with her. I've, I mean, I met her 15 years ago when we've done occasional gigs, but we've started to work together more. Mm-hmm. And she asked me to, to join at the San Jose Jazz Festival, and it was a marvelous gig. She plays a lot of really lesser-known, challenging, melodically and rhythmically songs, Mm -hmm. and I love doing that. Mm -hmm. Songs by Chico Pinheiro and just composers that are are kind of cutting edge, Mm -hmm. along with Jobim and all Mm -hmm. the... Ivan Lentz and all the great composers. So you get a set list, um, and yes. and then you have to really work on those pieces. And so I'd really like to hear about that process. Like, ah, <laughs> the actual the work. shedding. Yes, yeah. yes. Shedding. The work is the work, and yeah. um, it's it's a lot of work. Um, I'm a tend to be a perfectionist, mm-hmm. and especially when I'm playing in a specific genre. I, and I'm going for as authentic a sound as I can. I really 
so uh, I really want to emulate those those notes, those chords, those riffs, that feel. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of listening. Mm. Um, or, so, let's, so for instance, that was a re- that was a challenging gig because I didn't have much time to prepare. And there were songs I had never played before and they were really involved. How much time did you have to prepare? Less than a week. Oh, oh my God. And um, they were hard songs. And n- not only were they hard they all had riffs that needed to be filled in and they were harmonically challenging mm-hmm. you know they they were just and that's how Chico Pinero's songs are that's how Ginga's songs are they're just they're beautiful and once you once you kind of learn it it all fits together but it's it's a lot yeah and so I listen to the songs a few thousand times mm-hmm. and I read along and I try to just get the groove mm-hmm. you know I try to get Tempo-wise, mm-hmm. you know what? What, what are the changes? Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times, too, on when you're listening to a recording, there's more mu- musicians on the mm-hmm. on the song. Yeah. There mm-hmm. might be yeah. an extra guitar player or a horn player, and that we're not going to have mm-hmm. at the gig. And in this gig, it was just piano, bass, drums, and voice. Yeah. And there wasn't a guitar play. Yeah. There wasn't a guitar player. There wasn't a horn player. So you have to pick and All choose and what what, you, what what's your lane. Mm-hmm. And um, so I usually it usually takes me a couple of hours just to kind of get inside the tune. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is where I'm not kind of struggling with just getting through the tune, but where I feel like I understand the tune. Yeah. I understand the architecture of the tune. I I kind of get melodically what the tune is about. I kind of get how the harmonies move through the tune. Um, just, I, you know, I would liken it to architecture, like looking at the bones of mm-hmm. the thing, like what, what was the bare minimum structure, and then they added the, the walls and the mm-hmm. floor and the windows. Yeah. And I, I, I look at analyzing music that way, that um, a great piece of music has an architecture. Yes. Never thought of it that way. That's really cool. Yeah, and and it's it's <clears throat> it can be very different depending on um, the type the 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 genre. But I feel like I've gotten a lot of that knowledge from being a classical musician, mm-hmm. and I, I got a degree in classical piano performance, and I was a love music theory and and almost became a music theory major. So I, I got to understand how to analyze mm-hmm. the classical composers. And that increased my enjoyment tenfold. Mm-hmm. And that there was more than one way to look at it. You've got all these different theorists, just like with math, I would imagine, arriving at the same conclusion with different, different formulas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing with music. And so... I always liked, I, I learned about form. Mm-hmm. I learned about harmonic structure, harmonic rhythm, which is how fast the harmonies change. It's called the harmonic rhythm, mm-hmm. which is different than the rhythm, like mm-hmm. how fast, mm-hmm. what's the meter of the song? Yeah. It's like how fast do the harmonies change? Is it, is it slow? Does it change? And then, of course, the, the structure of the melody. What is the main melody? How is the melody varied? Are there is there more than one melody? And then, of course analyzing the harmony itself. Yeah. Does it stay in the key? Does it play around with other key centers? Then, of course, the dynamics and how are you <laughs> going to interpret when you repeat the melody? You know, there's just... Yeah. So there's many layers to that. And I always like to get to that place, but I can't get to that place until I understand the song. Yeah. So for me, it's... Um, and then I can't be feel free 
to improvise mm -hmm. until I have my footing. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have the chance to get there and I just have to kind of wing it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the nature of being a pianist for hire. You know, someone calls you, hey, I, my piano player can no longer do the gig. It's on Saturday. Can you do this? And, you know, please send me a set list and <laughs> can I can I throw in a few of mine? You know that yeah, that yeah. kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But the more you play in a genre, the more it, it's it's less daunting. But this was a set list that was um, was challenging, mm -hmm. and I knew I was playing with an extraordinary rhythm section, and I was. And they they'd also played with her before, so I was kind of the new the new right. kid on the block. So I basically told everybody that. Um, other than working and eating and sleeping, I'm in the studio mm -hmm. doing, you know, 10 hour days oh, yeah. shedding, you know, mm -hmm. and I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's not always my favorite way of working, but right. fortunately I know how to do that yeah. because I've been doing that my whole life. Mm -hmm. I mean, classical music school, boy, you, you had to play note things perfectly and you got judged by juries, they actually called them. Mm -hmm. It was pretty miserable. Yeah. So I kind of self-impose that on myself, but I also really want to sound good. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 an adrenaline rush too, you know, when you have a deadline. Yeah. That's that kind of is what gets me to really focus. And I know I know how to do it, but I'm also miserable. You know, I'm also like, oh, yeah. I have three more songs I haven't touched, and right. it's two in the morning. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Wow. So that's um, that's part of the process. Yeah. Does you know? Does that? Yeah, Ask me more if you... Yeah, one, yeah, I, yeah, that is great. I love hearing that. One just basic, super simple question is, did you have to learn those all by ear or did you have charts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I could not have learned those by ear okay. at that time. I did have I charts. I was going to like faint if you said that you oh, did, but... No. But here's the thing. Charts are an art, not a science. Mm -hmm. And depending on who's writing the chart and how well the chart's written it can be challenging. Now, I had pretty good charts. Mm -hmm. I would say overall I had really good charts, but they weren't... I, I had to okay. modify. Yes. So can I ask a question about charts? I just read a whole thing that Anton Schwartz posted actually on Facebook. It, it was like a thing about how to make a good chart. Uh -huh. Okay, so just I'm just curious as to what you think makes a good chart. I mean, talking about spacing with the measures, things that make it more easy, you know, just a little easier to read. So do you want to say oh, absolutely. What, the qualities so, of a good chart? So it's funny <laughs> that you mention this because I... Um, one summer was asked to teach a class at Jazz Camp West. This mm -hmm. was such a thrill after so many years of being a student there. Then I was an accompanist to Maria Marquez mm -hmm. in her South American class and to Sandy Cressman. And, and then one year um, I was asked to be an accompanist, but also to teach a class. Well, Jazz Camp West has all these phenomenal world-class piano players teaching mm -hmm. and anything you would want to know. So I was like, what am I going to teach? So I decided uh, to, uh, you know, it was great. Madeline Eastman, who was the musical director at the time and is an amazing vocalist, she, um, I proposed something to her I, I called Crossing the Bridge from Classical to Jazz. Mm -hmm. Of course, oh, yeah. it has the nice. pun of bridge, oh, yeah. the yeah. bridge of right. a song, but also because that's my story. Yeah. Right. So I thought, well, I can teach how I how did I right. cross the bridge? Yeah. I didn't go to school for it. I went to classical school. Mm -hmm. um, nobody really taught me. And, and you know, it wasn't an easy... I mean, I, I could have learned some things faster and better. But one of the things I... You know, and I had six days to teach this class. So I had a little 
cha- uh, topic for each day, and one day was chart reading. Mm. You know, and I so I printed up a bunch of good charts, bad charts, mediocre charts. <laughs> and uh, I thought we'd spend a day on it. We ended up spending three full days on it, and we could have spent more on on what makes a good chart. So it's funny that you asked me that. And I really enjoyed it because mm-hmm. no one had ever really, you know, musicians, we all complain to each other about charts all yeah, the time. Right. And, <laughs> um, and there's so many... Uh, Hand, I still handwrite charts, even though I have mm-hmm. uh, the software. I mm-hmm. just, you know, I, I need to do that more. But um, there's all these different softwares. So yeah. rule number one, you want to make it easy to read, yeah. right? Legible. Legible. Um, and as, as less, uh, you know, as, as less crowded, mm-hmm. as least crowded as possible. Yeah. So you definitely want to have your measures lined up. Mm-hmm. So typically it's four measures mm-hmm. to a line, right? And you want to... You start by, right? Yeah. Obvious, right? I have a million charts where there's three measures on one line and five on the next. And... (laughs) And I've gotten so used to them, but then I give them to people and they're, they're complaining to me and I think, I really should rewrite that chart, but I've been using it for 15 right. years. Yeah, of course. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody said on the news the other day, which we... Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you want to have it even and consistent. Um, notation, is it a chart where you're going to have the melody written out note-wise mm-hmm. or is it just a chord chart? Mm-hmm. I hate chord charts. Mm-hmm. Hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think it's a chart. It's mm-hmm. a harmony chart, right, but it's exactly. not a chart. I want to see the melody. Mm-hmm. I want to, even if I'm never playing the melody, I want to see the melody. Yeah. Sometimes you, you don't have the time to do that. Mm-hmm. But I get so many charts of songs that I really don't know that are just the chords. Mm-hmm. And it's really miserable. And also the chords may be very generic mm-hmm. and I'm usually going to want to fancy them up, mm-hmm. add, yeah. add uh, what they call extensions, mm-hmm. Nines and seven mm-hmm. and nines and elevens and flat sharp nines, exactly. all of that, and it'll just say G seven. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what kind of G seven. Well, if I don't know the melody, exactly. I right. don't know what kind of alteration yeah. for that chord. I don't know if I can do a flat nine there. What if the melody has a regular nine? Mm-hmm. Can't do a sharp eleven if there's a five. You know. Right. right. So all of that is very unhelpful, and so then I end up if that's the chart I was given. I have to do it by ear. Mm-hmm. I have to listen to the song and go, ooh, oh, they put another chord before that. What is that chord? And that's very time consuming. Yeah. Fortunately, the more you do it, the better you get at it. But it, it, I'm not super fast at it unless I'm in the groove of mm-hmm. doing it. I can now recognize sharp nine chords mm-hmm. and things like it. But there's still some chords that I, I'm like, oh, it's either a this or a that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so back to your question of what makes a good chart. Um, as accurate as you want it to be played. Mm-hmm. So if you want a, a G sharp 11 major 7, mm-hmm. yeah. it's nice to write G yeah, sharp right. 11 right, major sure. 7 rather than G yeah. or G major 7, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but there are different ways to write G sharp major 7 sharp 11. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's written as... Um, flat, uh, uh, the flat five, because the sharp 11 is also a flat five. Mm-hmm. So they might say flat five major seven. That mm-hmm. drives me crazy because I, just because I'm, 
I register sharp 11. Yeah. And that's because... On a major the, chord. In a major yeah. chord. Because uh, also that's how the Brazilians mm -hmm. tend to write it. So I've been reading those charts for X many years. That's the way I notate it. Right. Or people, you know how you can write a major seventh with a triangle mm -hmm. or a capital M? Mm -hmm. I hate the M's. The mm -hmm. M's are the worst, yeah. The worst. I don't like the M's, the M's either. No M's are horrible. The triangle is good. Triangle, <laughs> it's major seventh, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Or you'll have a chart that has both. Mm -hmm. You know, where or even if it says mage seven, mm -hmm. that's better than just M. Mm -hmm. But I still hate it because it's too much information. Yeah. So I'm really into efficiency. Mm -hmm. How um, and I I also have a tough time, and this is just peculiar to me. There are some chords that I can e more easily read as flat chords than sharp chords. Yeah. Yes. So even if I'm a sh in a sharp key. Yeah. And let's say I'm in E flat, mm -hmm. and there's a uh, no. Uh, uh, let's say I'm in E major, okay. mm -hmm. and there's a G sharp chord. Mm -hmm. It's easier for me to read it as A flat, right. and it's just me. So I will write that for myself, mm -hmm. but yeah. then I'm giving it out to someone else, and I have to say to them, I know we're in E major, but you know when I see G sharp, I just it just yeah. throws me. You know, and mm -hmm. hopefully they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Sometimes they're like, well, that's really screwed up, you know. So you remember to say that to them. I right? hope so. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I try to. I, mean, I try yeah. to. Um, you know, I get plenty of musicians complaining to be on my charts, and they're all justified, and I try to keep up with it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, but what about, like, if you have, um, if, if you've written out all your four-measure lines, yes. but you have, uh, you know, a melody that has uh, a lot of eighth notes or some... 16th notes in there and so you can only fit two measures then you know I mean then do you that's a really that good question <laughs> um I've generally been able to fit four measures in okay. um I have not I'm guilty not? of the of okay, the well, like three measure and you know. yeah it's 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 a tough thing but I would whenever I write charts I write equal measures unless it's the last line yeah. And it's three measures. Follow the phrase, basically. Exactly. But um, be just because it's it's easier, even if you're working with people, mm -hmm. to say, you know, and I, I try to put measures in yeah. if it's a really long chart. Yeah. It's easier to say measure eight. People mm -hmm. know that's right. two lines down yeah. rather than having to count. <laughs> I number them all. I, oh, I number that, all on all the... On each the line. On each, each line. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So it's easier to do that in fours, yeah. right? Because you can go, you know, go to measure 20 something or other. Now, I have to say, I have a lot of charts that are not that way mm -hmm. and I've gotten used to them yeah. right. and I don't feel like rewriting them. But if I'm writing a chart... Yeah. So if you have a lot of eighths or sixteenth notes... That's tough. Mm -hmm. um, you get you squish them all in there, and then maybe it's like, maybe oh, you're like. in the wrong meter. Maybe you should be in eighth. Maybe it should be uh, four eight, or instead of four four. Mm. So that I, I, I mean, don't they're know. they're just classic standards, you know. Oh, um, and, anyway. and you're finding it hard to put four. Yeah, I have. Yeah. That's uh, I. I would love to. I can't you know, think of like right now, but I have examples then in my book. That, yeah. Of of that, you know. But anyway, it, I, I ended up getting um, uh, one of those big iPads, you know, so that I could actually erase things very easily. I, I actually write do it by hand on an iPad. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah, and um, you know, I can print them out, and I can actually make different colors for different lyrics. You know, for the, it's kind of cool. Um, but you know, when I was just doing it with a pencil. It's there's a lot of racing and sometimes you know how that goes. You're just it's like, terrible. It's right? like a black mark. It's a black. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And I, I I'm not proud to say it, but oh I still God. do most of my charts by hand. Um, 
and again, it's been on the list for years. Okay, I really need to. Need to but I have um, which which software is that everybody loves, but finale? it's really no, not Finale. The other Sibelius. one, Sibelius. But I hear it's really hard to really Learn. get good at. Yeah. And I, do you think it is? No, no, not for an old. Maybe person. you could give me a tutorial on that too, because I wouldn't mind being able to because do that. Because I yeah. would really, I have it, and I would love mm -hmm. to use it, sure. but. Um, and I really would love to use it because those those charts I love. Yeah, I agree. They're the nicest looking. Uh, Finale, you know, are okay, but mm -hmm. I really like Sibelius. Mm -hmm. It's just that I, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. I, um, I, did, I used Sibelius one time for a big, big band project. And the one thing I couldn't figure out is actually the playhead. The playhead was the worst part of Sibelius for me, was trying to get it to move around in the right oh, way. Uh -huh. I, like, had to drag it. I couldn't figure out a way to... Bring it back to the beginning or back right. to the spot. And those are the frustrating moments yeah. when you're working with a software program. You're like, God damn it, this is taking me two freaking hours. I could have just written fucking, it out. Yeah. Yes, like, absolutely. And, and that's <laughs> kind of what I end up doing. And there's something, it's kind of old school. It's because I went to music school before there were computer software programs mm -hmm. yeah. and all that. We did all our theory and I wrote, I wrote scores all by hand. And I'm not saying that I, you know, I love it, but mm -hmm. it, it kind of gets in your brain in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Not that it doesn't with the software, but right. I think it's kind of like a habit. It's it's yeah. how I learn to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something satisfying about writing a nice chart by yeah. hand. Yeah, you're probably in the chart a little bit more. It's like when you write something for like notes, you know, it's been shown that that's probably better for the mm -hmm. brain to like oh, good. physically write things. Yeah, I actually, yeah. I know when I'm listening to, when I used to listen to lectures, <laughs> um, you know, it always helped me to, to take notes, even though I might not look at the notes, but it somehow goes in the head better. Right. And, you know, Bennett, yeah, we took, or actually, I'm not sure, did you take the theory with Bennett or not? No. Oh, so at the JC, because I went back to school oh, the JC like six years so ago. Oh, the JC so wonderful. Yeah. And so Bennett, I took Bennett's uh, oh. Friedman's uh, jazz theory class. And so he had us writing out um, an entire score. I think it was like three horns, piano, bass, and drums, yeah. and parts. By and hands, we all, we had parts. to do it by hand. We were required to do it by hand. It took me pretty much like two full eight-hour days. Yes, I believe it. It takes a while. I <laughs> totally believe I it. And that's, <laughs> yeah, that it's, um, it's, incredibly time consuming and that's probably why I don't write as many charts or fix as many charts. Yeah. So every once in a while I'll just break down and I'll, but I'm, I'm usually, if I'm rewriting, at least I'm starting from not having to figure out the chords. I'm just right. reformatting it and, and that's much easier. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is, um, it's just laborious. And I think, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, um, don't realize how long it takes mm -hmm. and how much we pra we have to practice. Yeah. Oh, I know. And Hello. It's it's um. It's not a two hour gig, a three hour gig. I mean, it's oh, like it's, there's so much more that goes into it. This oh. is this is kind of a little bit of a theme. What yes. you know with the with the podcast here with musicians. It's it's uh, you know, and I was talking to one of my best friends who's a singer who uh, I was. She's a music therapist as well, and we were a duo back in Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. the Ozer Moore duo, and we. We were joking about how you go to parties and you tell people, you know, you're a musician and blah, blah, blah. And they're just, oh, how lucky. I mm. wish I had, you know. And you just, um, it's really lovely to be acknowledged. And I don't, I, it's nice to hear that. Mm -hmm. But it's also, I always find myself saying, so do I even want to bother mm. talking about what it's really like to be a musician yeah. mm. or the other half of being a musician yeah. or the other three quarters of, um, mm -hmm. or, or do I just want to 
to time myself for how long do I have to really listen to this before I change the subject because it starts to hurt after a mm -hmm. while. It just starts to feel like um, I want to acknowledge it and take it in and be appreciative, but I don't know if I have the energy or the desire to um, to bring up what it what the yeah. profession what being a professional what it really, music is, really yeah. is. And you know, so it's it's um, I I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't change it for anything, mm -hmm. but you know, I, there are some decisions I would have made differently. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, I think everybody in, in their professional life perhaps has, has those, uh, realizations or, mm -hmm. or reckonings, but, um, it's, you know, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's imagine that follow suit for most artists of different things like, uh, directors or, uh, you know, physical artists, painters, mm -hmm. uh, graphic designers, anyone, because, yeah. you know, we always see the finished product right? and that's kind of it, you know, as a consumer, mm -hmm. you don't always think about the, you know, what it took to get to that. Well, product. exactly. And I mean, something that's really been, uh, just in the last five or six years for me, and I've, I've been at this for decades mm -hmm. is that when I was little and because I used to, um, I, act, I, I've been in theater and I was in a social change feminist theater company for many years where I acted and wrote and did music. God. And it was like a, kind of a too. dream come true That's, because yeah. I always wanted to, to be that kind of artist and uh, did that for so many years. And it was really where I got to direct people and, and rehearse people and jump on and off the stage and compose music. Um, when I was little, I think I... I held out that what being successful was, was gonna, I was going to be rich and famous. Mm -hmm. And I, not so much the rich, but sure, I would have lots of money so I could really help change the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was always with this consciousness that I wanted to bring love and light to the world mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that I'd have the platform to do it yes. if I were that was what happened to me. And I used to, you know, when I was a kid and I'd watch all the talk shows, I used to pretend I was on the talk shows. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was always a performer. And then as I went through my life and things happen, <laughs> kids mm -hmm. and marriages and divorces and mm -hmm. all that stuff, um, it, it looked less and less likely that, that I was going to, you know, go to Hollywood and, and, and be that person. But I've always found really interesting um, ways to perform. Mm -hmm. I mean, the story that you heard about Lenny, you know, I wouldn't, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that's incredible. A lot of people will never have that kind of magical yeah. thing. And things with the theater company mm -hmm. that I did, it was called Common Ground Theater Company. We toured the country and did amazing, you know, it felt like really powerful work yeah. and, you know, raising my kids mm -hmm. and, and teaching piano. I've, you know, met so many amazing students and, um, now I have two additional jobs. I'm the music director of both a synagogue and a church oh, wow. that share the same space, share the same building. And I kind of fell into being the choir directors mm -hmm. of both of these choirs. Now, I'd never been a choir director before, but I've been a band director. I've, yeah. I've run lots of bands. I've been a teacher, a music teacher privately my whole career. Um, but a church choir, no. And, you know, a synagogue choir, no. Um, but I've been at those jobs for three years now. And of course, I've learned on the job and realized I had all these skills for it. A couple I didn't have, but, you know, and I, and it's a very progressive Christian church. So it's, 
I love I love everything about it, and I, we're members of the synagogue, and, mm -hmm. and I love that community. So I'm very lucky. It's the type of religious institutions that um, I can align with, and um, I'm just so happy doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I ever would have imagined I'd be doing at mm -hmm. this point in my life or ever, and feeling really nourished mm -hmm. and really like... I am changing the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm using my theater skills. I'm getting people to perform better. I'm getting people to sing solos, you know, present. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of being myself, yeah. winging it, but also, you know, t going to some workshops of real master teachers mm -hmm. of right. choir stuff. But I'll always just be me doing it. And, of course, I'm at the piano directing. I'm not in front directing, so... You know, that's different. Mm -hmm. And and then my piano students, I teach mostly adults. Mm -hmm. And I'm just in heaven because I have to use a different method with each person. Mm -hmm. I get adult beginners. I get people who've played their whole lives and want to undo some bad habits. I get people that have said, I've, I've, I don't even know where C is on the piano, but it's been my lifelong love and I'm retired. And yeah. And then I say, well, what's your goal? What do you want to do? rather than, well, how would I teach a seven-year-old? You know, we're adults, we have limited time. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, if you could dream up what you want to do, and one person's like, I want to play for Elise. Mm -hmm. And this person is a ways off from doing that. Mm -hmm. But we, um, we're, we're learning all the basics, and I'm teaching him by rote some measures yeah. of for Elise, even though it's way out of where he's ready for. Yeah. Because if he just has... a couple of measures of it, he's going to feel successful. Yes. Yeah. So I'm learning how to, you know, and one said, well, I want to be able to play Christmas carols for my family. Mm -hmm. And I don't know a thing about piano. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. we're going to get three carols, mm -hmm. you know, at, as a minimum. Yeah. And by, and I don't know how we're going to do it. Yeah. But, right. You know, oh, I love we'll, it. we'll do it. Yeah, so it forces me to be creative, yeah, like getting totally. inside the head of this person. Right. You know, should I work more in their technique? Should I work more on this? How do they learn best? Should I teach the notes? Should I teach, teach by rote? I always work on posture and all yeah. that because my piano teachers never did. Mm -hmm. And I was in pain when I graduated from college because I'd been hunched uh, over. Wow. I, you know, they never told me, they never helped me with yeah. mm -hmm. how to not get all the injuries mm -hmm. that I got. So I'm really careful about that. Yes. So it's really, you know, and... And I still perform and I still do concerts, but I'm not going to grab every gig mm -hmm. anymore mm -hmm. because I'm too old for that. Yeah. Um, wow. Oh, boy, that's a lot. I'm just, uh, I just have to take a moment because I'm like tearing up. Just listen, I'm noticing myself tearing up because I'm just so moved by your story. And uh, I mean, <clears throat> there's a lot to digest. Mm -hmm. And I talk fast. I'm, I'm just, I'm just like, oh my god! I'm so glad you came over here. <laughs> I'm delighted. But, um, it's so lovely to to be asked these questions. So, um, yeah, there, I have lots more. Yeah, <laughs> go for um, it. So let's see. Um, so you just mentioned that you don't take every gig. So, what kind of gigs do you like to take? What makes you want to take a gig? Well, I love taking gigs where there's a piano there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh God, yeah. Um, but I don't. Always. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's, it's a venue that I like. I have a wonderful keyboard, but um, 
Are you able to get it into the car and all that by yourself and out? And I am. I finally have a keyboard that is not too heavy. When I started playing, I was schlepping a Rhodes around. And this was back in Michigan in blizzards and snow. You know, and back then, of course, I didn't want to let anybody know that, you know, I couldn't do it. Yeah, right. Now I'm like, someone offers to help. I'm like, absolutely. Yeah, Thank totally. you so much. <laughs> what a gentleman or gentlewoman you are. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I have a keyboard. It's still a schlep, though. Mm-hmm. And there is a saying, I'm sure other musicians have said it to you, is uh, they pay you to schlep and you play for free. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are that's one thing. If there's a tuned piano, mm-hmm. I'm always more interested. Um, venue is important, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, I'm happy to do club gigs if it's a real... It kind of a there's a listening element to it or mm-hmm. the club is kind of known to have live music where people like it. Mm-hmm. I've played everywhere. I've played at dive bars. I, I mean, it's it's really fun, the number of venue, the type of venues I've played at. I love playing concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've, I love playing at Piedmont Piano in mm-hmm. Oakland because mm-hmm. um, you get to play there. Italian fazioli handmade piano where it's butter. You know, you touch it and the sound echoes for miles. Um, That's always really fun to play on a fine instrument. I love doing private events when someone's Mm -hmm. got a piano in their home. Mm -hmm. I love, I actually, I really like playing funerals. Mm. Um, And that may sound a little morbid, but what I like about playing funerals is how present everyone is. Mm -hmm. There's something about if the music can be comforting and be part of the healing for the the grieving people, mm-hmm. I feel really like I've contributed something of value. And I that's really, I really want to contribute something of value. But if, if I'm commanding someone's attention to pay attention to me, I want to have something to say. And so that's what I always think, whether I'm playing for a funeral or a wedding or a crowded bar, I want to think if there's one person out there listening, I'm speaking to them. I, you know, and if there's nobody listening, then I'm playing for my soul. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's more pleasant to play when, you know, and I have to say money is a factor Mm -hmm. as, as I've, um, now it's not a factor if it's, if it's with someone I really want to play with Mm -hmm. and it's a venue I really want. So everything's negotiable. Right. But, um, but I, you know, so it's always a combination of things. I really prefer to play indoor gigs than outdoor gigs, mm-hmm. although I have played wonderful outdoor gigs if it's mic'd well, if it's shaded. And I've played on festival stages that have been absolutely marvelous. Mm. You know, I played at the Vancouver Folk Festival years ago and the National Women's Music Festival. And it's something, oh, and I played at Gay Pride in the 80s oh, wow. with a rock band called Rumors of the Big Wave mm-hmm. and uh, in front of Moscone Center. So I... There really isn't, you know, um, one venue. I don't like playing, um, you know, outdoors in the sun when mm-hmm. nobody, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But I, but I really, um, it's nice to be able to, like when we played at the San Jose Jazz Festival, for instance, we were playing inside the Fairmont Hotel. And we walked in and the sound guys were just wonderful and the piano had just been tuned. And, you know, it was just like, yeah. hey, how you doing? Tell me what, you know, it, it's such... A lovely thing yeah. to have that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's one of the perks you get when you're more well-known. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, um, and like at the Hillsborough Hotel, I'm so familiar with the venue that, you know, I might be tired when I get there, but I know that how I'm going to feel in an hour when yeah. I've been playing. Yeah. You know, so. Um, so, yeah, you know, my husband, um, you're one of his absolute favorite people to listen to. And one of the things, yeah, I was, t you know, he was so excited when I, mm -hmm. I told him that you were so coming. Sweet. Yeah. And uh, so we, we kind of talked about you this morning a little bit and he was, he's like, you know, she is just the piano boss. There's nothing that I love. He calls you the piano boss because you you know, and when you're at Hotel Healdsburg and Pete Barche is there and Kendrick mm -hmm. and the way, and of course I've watched this too, but you just totally um, take charge. You're such a leader. And the way that you communicate with the musicians, I mean, they are like, they are just looking at you like every second, taking the cues. And um, I'm pretty amazed at, at how, at your leadership skills, actually. Thank you so much. And I'd like to hear about it. Oh, well, that's, that's really, it's been a learning process. Um, thank you for noticing that. Mm. And I have to say, you know, Playing with Peter and Kendrick is a, is a dream trio. And the other thing that's great about it is that we've been playing together now for a, quite a few years. Okay. And there's nothing like that, yeah. you know. There are, um, so just in, in terms of how I love when it's the three of us, mm -hmm. part of it uh, is, is that we, we, we know each other. Yeah. yeah. And we've, we've played these tunes a lot. And so we, 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 we all have our, you know, musical habits mm -hmm. and our musical um, idiosyncrasies. And so it's like, okay, I know he's getting ready to finish his solo up or no, I'm just going to hang back some more or no, he wants me to jump in. You know, we, 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 we know those musical things because mm -hmm. everyone has their personal idiosyncrasies. So that's one thing. Um, when I started playing, well, really from the beginning, but when I started playing with other people, I was um, kind of acutely aware of the the differences with guys and yeah. girls and, you know, the sexism and the, you know, and that I felt I had to be really great, you know, really good to get the respect and mm -hmm. all that. And it's, it's just simply true. Now that's not true with everybody. Um, but pretty much five minutes into playing with somebody you can kind of tell, is this someone who's with me mm -hmm. or ignoring me yeah. or into their own trip or it's, or it just simply won't communicate with me. And I've had years of doing that kind of thing. Gosh. And I just, I, I'm done with, I mean, I say I'm done with it. And then I find myself in a situation where I'm, you know, maybe playing with someone I had, have to play with that night that I don't know. And it's like, oh, I remember this, mm -hmm. but I think, Hey, that's, that's all right. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I've had to learn how to, to get a tougher skin. Um, I haven't always had a tough skin. Mm -hmm. I am naturally um, kind of a leader and, and naturally like to be in charge. Yeah. But I'm also a really good collaborator. Mm -hmm. So I know how to do both. Um, and I have also been raised a woman in this society. Mm -hmm. And you know, have had more than I'd like, more than my fair share of experiences where I'll give a musical idea in a rehearsal and it'll get ignored and then someone else, a guy will say it and they'll go, oh my God, what a great idea. Let's do the intro that way. And I have to just, you know, you know, uh, yeah. roll with it. And that's happened to me so many times. But then I've had to look at what can I change in myself? Mm -hmm. not, not that it's my fault, but how... Um, 
what do I have to develop so I'm not going to at least do my best so that doesn't happen mm-hmm. again? And I actually, a few, a few years ago, I had a talk with Peter Barche because um, I always ask him for feedback and mm-hmm. he's, he's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, and also sometimes I can overcompensate and feel like I'm being too bossy, right? So, you know, trying to find that. So he said, well, you know, you should take over more in the trio. You, you know, you just know, you need to tell us what to do. And it surprised me to hear that because I thought I was. Uh-huh. And I said, really? I said, I'm, I'm, he said, yeah, just say it out loud. No, but you know, say no, uh, next, you know, go to the top. We're doing right. trades, yeah. um, do it. And I'm so glad he was honest enough to tell me that he yeah. thought I wasn't doing that enough. So mm-hmm. I started doing it more and realizing, um, I'd rather someone say, I got it. Don't tell me then I didn't know because you weren't cueing me right. and that you're going to piss each other off. Musicians will. They just will. And um, you'll make mistakes. You'll, you know, I'll lose my place in the thing. And to just um, not try to not let someone, you know, giving me the evil eye mm-hmm. derail me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've used humor more. Uh-huh. Um, and even when someone maybe has noticed my mistakes, if, if they may make a mistake in a song, yeah. I might... I might say to them during the break, well, I'm, it's so good to know I'm not the only person yes, screwing right. up. Yeah. Just, yeah. you know, just to kind of say, hey, we're human. Mm-hmm. Um, and even I'm kind of dishing it back a little, but mm-hmm. it's like, you know, and it's also helps me gain my equilibrium yeah. that it's okay if I, you know, of course nobody wants to make a mistake mm-hmm. or lose the form. But I, you know, I, I have the, the beauty of being a musician is you never stop learning. And you never stop improving. And if you think that you have reached that point, that's you're not the kind of musician yeah. I want to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, people have asked me, do you like working with men versus women? And I say, no, I like working with people I like working mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. There is differences. You know, we women tend to be more, um, we explain things more and we want to make sure we haven't hurt anyone's feelings. Um but sometimes that's not always good. Sometimes you want someone just going, hey, could you just play it this way? Mm-hmm. You know, guys won't necessarily get their feelings hurt. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, this is very generalization. Right. I, sometimes I, really, I can feel it. Sometimes, though, you know, because I've, I've been in some situations too, some combos and things. And sometimes mm-hmm. it feels like if I'm that direct, because I can be that way, mm-hmm. that it's it, it just feels sometimes... Kind of weird um, because oh god now I'm saying this like, yeah, like you know how? in front how? of everybody but um, that you know I'm this woman telling them what to do and you know it's kind of makes I sometimes I just notice that like mm. they feel weird I've been you know I wasn't is this when you've been the uh, where band I've been the leader pe- well we're in a combo at school oh. in a school oh okay and so the, you know it's it isn't clear who's the leader right. I have been a natural leader in my life as a you know. Yeah. A workshop leader, a yoga teacher for you know nearly thirty years. I was doing that, and so it's a natural. I think even though I'm a kind of a quiet person, it's really natural for me to take that leadership position. But I'm in a room full of guys, yeah. you know, and on top of it, I'm older, and you know, so it's it was tricky. It is tricky, and I that's why I I really prefer mm-hmm. when I'm the leader, leader. Yeah. When it's my trio, because mm-hmm. then there's no ambiguity. Yeah. But I'm also still very collaborative, mm-hmm. and 
you know, so when I'm, especially when I'm working, well, when I'm working with anybody, but especially musicians who might be more experienced in one aspect of, or one genre of the music, I do ask for opinions. Mm -hmm. um, but then I usually say, but it's my call. Mm -hmm. When it's less, when it's more a collaborative thing, um, it's harder. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I agree with you. I, I find that for whatever reason, it's not as easy. Mm -hmm. Some guys are great about it, um, but it's not as easy. Yeah. And there, I've, I've been playing enough over these last decades of being here to know which of the musicians I feel like mm -hmm. I can communicate mm -hmm. musically with mm -hmm. more. But sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes someone who's not been very receptive somehow they gain a new respect for me or they're mm -hmm. in a different mood yeah. and they listen. And sometimes someone who's been great can kind of surprise me yeah. with being uh, dismissive mm -hmm. or, and it's... Dismissive is really the word. This is, you know, that is, that's... It's the worst. Yeah. It's the worst. And I've been in situations even outside of school in that situation where, you know, there's really a leader, but he's saying that he's not a leader, for example, but he's... You know, yeah. so anyway, I don't, I don't want to get into it because I, I, I just don't, but, <laughs> but let's just say dismissive is, <laughs> is a good word. It, it's, yeah. um, I think, you know, like anything, like playing music is the easy, I always say it's, that's the easier part mm -hmm. and it's not easy, right? It's all the personal dynamics, keeping a band yeah. together, mm -hmm. being the band leader, doing gigs. And that's one of the reasons I've loved my trio at the hotel, mm -hmm. because we have a routine. I send them the set list. I, I you know, create the books. Mm -hmm. I say, you know, and then once we, we've been doing that for years, it's like, hey, do you want to take another solo? You know, I don't feel like soloing on this one tonight. We yeah. can. But, um, but the, the, the truth is I don't always like being the leader. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes it's nice, nice to just be the hired hand. Yeah. But with that comes feeling less in control yeah. and less like I can say anything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes being not welcomed in in a certain way. Right. And at those points, I just realize I, I, I've been developing a new attitude of I'm doing this for me. Yeah. And the thing is, when you know that that's the situation, that you are just that hired piano player, um, which I've also been in that situation, knowing that that's just what I am. Yeah. And when it's easy to surrender to, to that as well. It, you absolutely. Know? So Sometimes it's, just, it's a pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's like, yeah. give me the set list. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you which ones I want to solo on unless yeah. you really want me, you know. Yeah. No, right. I love that. I, cool. I, yeah. I really love that, especially when the band leader has it together. Yeah. yeah. So it's the clarity maybe of like knowing, you know, if, is there a leader? Who's the leader? Absolutely. And, you know, and just... Um, yeah, I've been a part. I I was for uh, a while back in uh, Michigan was uh, part of a group. It was a, a women's uh, big band group called Lady Be Good, <laughs> and I can't remember if I was the music director or if it was kind of collective. Mm -hmm. But um, those are those are tricky mm -hmm. when it's sort of collective. Yeah. and in the theater company I was in, it was sort of collective, mm -hmm. even though we had a director. And you know, it was after years and years of doing that that I said, I either want to be the boss or I want to be the hired hand. Because yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and, and I, I really do like putting a, a band together, but it's so much work being the band leader. It's so Getting much work. Getting those charts together. The charts, <clears throat> but booking and okay, dealing yeah, with totally. rehearsal. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. So, um, 
there's trade-offs. Mm-hmm. But I but I do think you you just have to find the people that you feel are with you mm-hmm. that you're that you're making something bigger bigger than yourself mm-hmm. and it's not about showing off your chops. Right. And it's, it's not always easy to find that because, and I, I always say, I think in general, musicians are insecure because we're all wanting to sound the way we want to sound and we're not, we're rarely there. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're, we're a mess. <laughs> no one like, you know, yeah. we're a mess yeah. and we're also really sensitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Exclamation. Yeah. <laughs> so true. I know that you have a daughter who is a musician, um, and I would love to hear a little bit about her. And well, my daughter is twenty nine, mm-hmm. and she has autism. And early on, she was my she's my first. I have I have two children, and she uh, one of the things I noticed from the beginning was that she didn't have eye contact, mm-hmm. and that's one of the signs that you look for. So when I talked to her, she would her eyes would wander all around, but mm. I would start to sing to her. And when I sang to her, she, we would lock eyes mm. and she would really look at me. So I just began to sing to her all the time and telling her what I was doing, you know, now we're going to eat. And being, you know, it was easy for me to take nursery rhymes and make up words. And I, I it just, I didn't even think about it. I just did it because yeah. I wanted to connect with her. And I used to teach piano at home when she was a baby, and she was, she would sit at the lessons because she she didn't crawl right away, but she was um, loved being at the piano lessons. She would kind of sing along, and she was too docile. Mm-hmm. She wasn't interested in things in the material world, but she was interested in the oral world, and I just connected with her that way. I mean, that was my way in. And when she um, got a little older, I was playing something on the piano and she toddled down the stairs and said, why did you play the low D at the end of that song? And I had not told her anything about the piano or the notes or anything. And I said, what? And it was, in fact, the low D. Yeah. And what I had done was I had transposed that song from the key that I had played it on on a CD that she'd heard in utero. It was a, 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 with a singer-songwriter, folk singer that I worked with all the time. And it was, you know, she, she, was, she wrote all the songs and I did piano. It was really beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. And she knew it was in D minor and not A minor, which was the key it was. Yeah. And I was absolutely floored. So I started bringing her over to the piano more and, you know, just kind of playing. And I, I, I think uh, at one point, either my husband or I asked her, said something like, can you sing middle C? Or, and then she, <clears throat> she sang a note and we went over to the piano mm-hmm. and it was like about a semitone sharp we thought, oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. And a week later, we were getting the piano tuned and the tuner said, your piano is just a little flat. <laughs> so she was singing the, the, the true middle C. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was kind of amazing. Yeah, wow. okay. and, but she exhibited a number of kind of extraordinarily tuned in 
on a sensory level, mm-hmm. psychic level, however you want to, one wants to describe it, way. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had, uh, you know, just a, a long journey to, that this was a really incredible child who really struggled to kind of understand this world and be in this world. And um, so I, right today, she's uh, she sings in our community chorale and she plays the flute and piccolo and plays with the Sonoma Hometown Band, which is our local band that plays at 4th of July mm-hmm. and Memorial Day weekend mm-hmm. and does concerts. And it's a non-audition choir and she's, you know, it's kind of an oddball duck of bunch of people and she fits right in. Mm-hmm. And actually last year, there the conductor of that band, who is just a wonderful man, he's so great, he um, heard me play Brazilian music. So he composed a piece for me, a con- piano concerto to play with the hometown band based on Brazilian rhythms. You know, cool. I, I went over and showed him, you know, Bayonne, a couple of things. And so I got to perform with my daughter mm-hmm. And her band yeah. la- a year ago in December, this piece that he wrote, and and I hadn't played with an or, an, uh, an orchestra or a band since, oh gosh, when was probably since high school. So it was such a thrill. <laughs> we did a performance in Sonoma and a performance at the Napa Valley Community College. They have a beautiful auditorium there, and. Um, so that was just a little thing yeah. that reminded yeah. me. But so now she, she music is um, her, you know, one of, she calls it her mandatory activities. <laughs> <laughs> and she takes flute lessons once a week. Um, but thank God, I mean, that's all I can say is that we had that to share because all through school she was in the choirs and the bands. And of course those teachers were always very hip to who she was mm-hmm. and how smart she was and how this was so right for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's been a really long journey. Yeah. You know, ask me whatever you want. I mean, mm-hmm. I could talk yeah. about her for hours and hours. So. Um, so I know that you have a son. How, how do they relate to each so other? So they're seven and a half years apart. Mm-hmm. My daughter is older. And when, um, oh, this was so sweet. My daughter just blows me away all the time. When she, when I was very pregnant, she asked me one day, "Is because we knew it was a boy, she said, is he going to have my style? <laughs> and what she meant was, is he going to be autistic? And I just loved that she, she came up with that word. I just, it was so poetic yeah. and creative mm-hmm. and she's that way. She, she loves, well, she's very orally gifted. So she loves vocabulary mm. and words and mm-hmm. I'm a real wordy vocabulary mm-hmm. person. So I love to yeah. explain things to her and then she incorporates it. And I said, I don't think so. I don't know. And um, so then he was born and immediately, you know, he's this Mr. Social butterfly and he wanted to play with her and when they were very 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 little there was ways they played together mm-hmm. you know um but by the time he was 3 or 4 even he was kind of surpassing her in kind of social communication even though she was very verbal and went to school and reads and all that just mm-hmm. um and he came up to us 
one day when he was probably no older than four and he was he said, why won't my sister play with me? Mm-hmm. And so we explained to him, yeah. you know, why. And then not that long later, he was a pretty early reader. We had a magazine, a Time magazine issue that was all about autism. And he grabbed it and it was laying on the living room floor reading about mm-hmm. autism. And I didn't even know he could really was uh, was capable of reading that level yet. Mm-hmm. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I want to understand my sister yeah. better. So that was really something. And we got to kind of cry together about the difficulties that it, you know, he had friends who had siblings that weren't autistic and he wanted that. So we just let him have his feelings and we had feelings. And Mm -hmm. then, um, he, he's a math guy and my daughter has a number system where she orders her entire world around numbers between one and seven. Mm. And she has colors that go with the numbers are the colors of the rainbow and days of week and cities and car brands and <laughs> everything. Mm. And people, you know, you're a number three woman, you're a number, and I'm an anytime woman. <laughs> um, and colors that, you know, so... Yeah. You know, it was more elaborate before we knew, before she could explain it to us. But of course, my son's really into math Mm -hmm. and stuff. So there was a point um, when he was quite a bit older where he would talk to her about her number system. Mm -hmm. And he knew what questions to ask her. And they started to connect more about her interests. Mm Because autistic people often have very... Uh, obsessive interests, and she's really into cars and roller coasters and birds and car alarms and just and weather and astronomy and nice. really cool. Yeah, she, and, awesome. and medical conditions. We got her Gray's Anatomy one year. Nice. <laughs> She'll, it, you, she, you know, so she really studies these topics, yeah. um, but you won't necessarily know because she won't necessarily share it with you because mm-hmm. she doesn't think to share it. Mm-hmm. But then you get in a conversation with her about something and she's a wealth of, of knowledge. So we try to work with how to use what she knows. To, right. And she's just, I mean, she's extraordinary, but it's, it's been a real yeah. long and windy road. So now that my son is uh, in his last year in college and he got to college and he, you know, you know how you're with your college friends and you share about your families and He's, he's told to all his friends all about his sister and how proud he is. And when he, before he went away to college, he took a picture of her closet and she, she organizes all her clothes in colors. So they're, you know, green, yellow, yeah. red or whatever. And he just, he had never, he'd never seen her closet before. So he took a picture and put it on his Instagram, yes. you know, and he was like, I'm so proud of my sister. And the New York Times came and wrote an article about the home she lives in because it's a new model mm-hmm. of adult housing. And they introduced, interviewed Maris and I, and it was on the front page of the home section. So he, you know, he showed his college college friends mm-hmm. that, and they yeah. were really proud. And when he brings his college friends home now, I can see that he shifted, even mm-hmm. though he's seven years younger than her. Sure, he's sort of gotten it that he's going to be her elder. Yes, and so. One visit, he came home, and I said, uh, "Why don't you guys go take a walk?" So they went out by themselves mm-hmm. and just talked. Because mm-hmm. my son has been um, shy with her, or he just, you know. But it's it's changing, mm-hmm. and I'm That's cool. So it's 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 just evolving. But there was there was a long period of time where we felt like we were raising two only children. Mm. 
because their schedules were so different. The way they socialized was so they were the you know they were in different schools you know so it was really I mean and they they loved each other mm -hmm. but it was it was they didn't yeah. get into it Very together separate, yeah mostly yeah, yeah. and that was it was what it was yeah. you know um, they didn't fight which was nice <laughs> but um, and we talk about it now I think it's totally impacted who he is I think he's a really compassionate person. Mm -hmm. Um, and he obviously observed us raising her yes. and, you know, I'm sure it'll keep unfolding what he learned and what he absorbed during those years mm -hmm. of growing up. And that community, um, maybe just so our listeners, somebody that might be interested, what is the year and the month of that, um, New York times article? Oh my gosh. It was 20, if you know, it was 2013, um, so it was 2013. I believe it was October. Mm -hmm. Was okay. literally, um, and it happened literally the week that my mother passed away. So she never got to see the article. Um, so it would have been either the first, second, or third Sunday because it was in the style section. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you can archive it. Mm -hmm. And the name of the the home that Maris lives in is called Sweetwater Spectrum. Mm -hmm. And they have a web, wonderful website. It's one word, sweetwaterspectrum.org, I believe. I think it's .org. Um, and it tells the whole history of it. And it's, it's a, a new model for housing for people, adults with autism. Mm -hmm. Very much needed. It's an epidemic of... It's, there are so few housing options for mm -hmm. people on the spectrum. And the ones that are out there just often don't work for mm -hmm. autistic people who really kind of need their own their own schedule. So yeah. a lot of group homes that work for some people mm -hmm. don't work well because everybody's doing everything institutionally mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. and that just yeah. doesn't work. What do you think makes this particular um, <clears throat> configuration so... so uh, workable, that, that it's so enjoyable and... Well, um, so my, my daughter's been there six years. She moved in in uh, August of 2013. So it's been a long process because it was a new model. Everything was new. You know, you, you had the organization that owns the property and runs the property. And then you have the state agencies that contract with each resident mm -hmm. for how much care they get. I see. So you've got two very distinct organizations in one setting with different everything and you've got four people living in a house all cooking their own meals and all being on different schedules. I would say the first few years were very rough. Um, since that time we've we don't have the original executive director. Mm -hmm. We have a great one now and we changed our supported living agency. Mm. So um, the ones we started out with, um, some of it is just that it was a new model. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, there were a lot of very hard growing pains. And um, I watched, you know, my daughter kind of regress and go backwards because it was um, so new and so chaotic. Yeah. Um, six years into it, it's, um, I still advocate, I go to, you know, I'm still very much <clears throat> a part of it, but I'm, I would say in the last year and a half, two years, I've really started letting go. Mm -hmm. But it took three, four years before I felt like I could pull back. Yeah. And some of it is me, mm -hmm. and some of it was just that it was still evolving. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it's a very complex 
situation. Now people that move in, if people move in now, they're moving into a kind of more well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. And it's in it's a whole different place. Yeah. But um now my <laughs> my daughter calls it her permanent retirement community. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not leaving this place. She's funny. She's, uh -huh. she's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> she really is. It took her years to, like, what is this place? Because she, everything's a metaphor to her. When she's, when she's introduced to something new, she has to liken it to something she knows. I realize I do that a lot. Mm -hmm. This is like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, she's always done that because it, abstract things are, like, this has to remind me of something. Yeah. So when she first moved in, she called it a college campus because mm -hmm. she'd been to the junior college. Mm -hmm. So, But then it was like, no, it really isn't because we live here. And, and then she called it camp because they did so many group things together, yeah. but it wasn't really camp. And then she found out it was a retirement community, yes. which is what it's most like yeah. in, yeah. That, in that there's a common building, mm -hmm. you have your own rooms. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> But I said, well, you need a career first, Mar. Before you <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's sweet. That's so cool. Oh. Yeah. She's really, she's really delightful. She's, she's, um, keeps me on my toes. Mm. And she comes to gigs and she's, um, she loves to come to gigs. She, she's very sensitive ears. So she sometimes, yes. you know, plugs her ears, yep. but mm -hmm. she loves concerts and she loves rap music. She call, She loves the chanting. She calls it. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, it's very thank you rhythmic. For about all that. Yeah. Oh, she, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. I feel very fortunate. She's she's really a love. Mm -hmm. yeah. Stephanie, maybe I can ask you. I hope I can get this question out in the way I'm trying to. Um, for listeners here that maybe have just met someone on the spectrum of autism, or maybe haven't yet, but could likely in the future. I'm just wondering if you have any sort of words as far as, you know, wanting to connect with someone on that spectrum and maybe what you can just say about that as far as... Like what what would be helpful to know yeah, about... Absolutely. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, I'd be happy to. So there's some common characteristics that I would say uh, make you get have that label. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and as a, a prelude to say, also no two are alike because they're people with this disability rather than the disability. And, and, but yet, that being said, um, there's a real challenge with social understanding, reading social cues, getting um, the impreciseness of language. Mm -hmm. Like we're so used to saying things and not realizing that we're being really vague about what we mean or we're kind of lying or it's our facial expression that, or our tone of voice that's really communicating yes. right. what we mean as opposed to just our words. Mm -hmm. Autistic people hear the words and de decode them very logically. And we, it's, it can be confusing. Yeah. Okay. And we infer all these things, you know, like I look over at you, you look like you're approving of what I'm saying, so I feel better, so I feel like, you know. Right, right. That's, it's very hard for them to read all of those, all of the nonverbal gestural cues. Social cues. Social cues at the same time. Right. And so one of the, the ways that I try to remember to communicate is to slow down my speaking. Mm -hmm. Because... 
sometimes it's the speed at which we we communicate really fast. Mm-hmm. We we we're t- and some of it I believe is that when they're very young, um, if you look at a baby, what babies do between the first and eighteen months of being alive is they're watching, right? Their eyes are they're taking in all this stuff. With autistic people that are often bombarded sensorily, mm-hmm. they literally can't watch. So all the stuff, all the just kind of being silent and observing, they have to do by not watching because it's, it's too much to visually take in the stimuli, right. orally take in the stimuli, and take in the sounds of the world. So like my daughter, part of her not looking at me was that so she could hear better. Mm-hmm. So she's looking away so that she could really understand things. Right. But somehow singing has a rhythm to it so she could follow mm. a repetitive pattern. But if you notice, language is very asymmetrical, mm-hmm. it, you know, and that's um, most autistic people. So, so to go back to their um, commonalities, so it's very hard for them to pick up social cues, social understanding, because there's too much information. A lot of them have sensory issues, meaning they hear things too loudly and they, they're, they're better at hearing than us. They almost hear more like an animal, mm-hmm. right? So they have hyper good hearing or bright lights bother them or um, the texture bothers them. Right. Everything is heightened. Okay. So imagine like if you went into like a disco ballroom and that, that was, it was always like that lights and loud music and people talking really fast. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like for, uh, that's how it was for Maris when she was young. It was like, you know, and they'd been in the womb, right? Um, She used to not be able to nap unless we were in a totally quiet place. You know, people would say, oh, I'll just carry her around. No, she couldn't fall asleep that way. And that was hard because I wanted to hold her while she fell asleep. So, most autistic people um, have some kind of sensory issue. Most autistic people are very uh, kind of obsessive compulsive about, not, not all, but have obsessive interests. And the kinds of interests they have are very um, categorical. So they'll study all the uh, breeds of dogs, or they'll study all the cars, or they'll study numbers, you know the kind of reading they like to do is fact-based. Mm-hmm. You know, this is that. The, the kind of reading that's just, like if Maris would read chapter books, but we, if you ask predictive, like what do you think this person was feeling? It's like she'll tell you what they ate for breakfast. What do you think's going to happen in the story? That's too abstract. Right. So abstract thought is a real struggle. But people on the spectrum can be great at math or music or, you know, things that catalog and categorize. And they'll be obsessive about it. They'll want to talk to you about their interests. Um, And unless you share, unless your interest is their interest, they won't know how to engage you. It's not like they don't want to. It's simply out of their wheelhouse. So, like, with your daughter, did you find yourself... Was it difficult sometimes if she wanted to talk about something that you weren't at all interested in? And yes. And go on and on. So how did you deal with that? Um, well, a lot of stuff I wasn't interested in. I wasn't interested in car alarms or bird poop or anything like that. But what I would do was I would take her to 
um, appliance stores. Mm. And we would spend the, you know, instead of going to the, you know, another kid's going to see, you know, whatever, we would go to the appliance store mm. so she could see all the different kinds of machines. So I, I would actually help her develop her mm-hmm. interests mm-hmm. Um, because that was the way in to her developing conversation yeah. and relating to people. Mm-hmm. So I would, whatever interest it was, we would, for, she was for a while really into um, alarm systems. So we would go to alarm stores. She was really interested in all the brand names mm-hmm. and how loud a decibel they were. Well, you take her into a an alarm store and the workers there are thrilled to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So I would say, well, you know, I sometimes, if, you know, if I could tell it was really receptive person, I would say, well, my daughter, you know, I would say she has autism and she's really interested in this. And if it was an intuitive person who could handle it, they would engage with her. Mm-hmm. So we'd go into music stores and she loved seeing flutes and different kinds of flutes. And, you know, usually there's kind of oddballs at music stores. And so <laughs> they would love having someone like Maris, mm-hmm. you know, to talk to about all the different brand names and mm-hmm. are they silver plated? I mean, she, you know, so I, I realized my, my life was, I wanted, I wanted this, this young person to be herself in the world, mm-hmm. but I also had to socialize her. Yeah. And what's the balance of helping her maintain her love of herself, because so many autistic people, especially the ones that are higher functioning and tend to be more self-aware, can develop severe depression because they know they're different mm-hmm. and they don't want to be and they don't understand why, they, why they're being left out. Mm-hmm. For some reason, my daughter um, always, <clears throat> she had a happy heart. And I think some of it perhaps is that I always just adored her Mm -hmm. and I would tell her Mm -hmm. how wonderful she was and I meant it, that she felt so loved Mm -hmm. and she felt that I wasn't just trying to change her out of it, even though I was, (laughs) not change, you know, even though I was trying to teach her. And a lot of the therapies at that time when she was little was very strict behavioral training and it was very reward and based and I couldn't do it with her Mm -hmm. because it was... Even though my, my daughter, I use rewards with her. It was too much that way. Mm-hmm. It, it felt more like training a dog. Mm-hmm. And I just, and she was also really clever at kind of, I'll, I'll say what you want me to say to get that candy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when mm-hmm. we leave this situation, I'll do what I want anyway. Right. So she could outsmart that. And if you're going to teach someone social skills, you really want them to be able to generalize mm-hmm. and use it. So it's much harder. It's much That's easier right. to teach reward stuff. I still use, she loves rewards and consequences and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she has something called sushi tickets at where she lives because she loves sushi and she's an expert on sushi. And um, so if she does something like try something new or sit next to, you know, yes. she'll get sushi tickets. Mm-hmm. And when she gets enough sushi tickets, they go out for sushi and ice cream. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do, you, you know, because she's a very structured mm-hmm. Um, her life has to be ordered. So there's a place for that. Yeah. Um, but it's different with each person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really, there are so many therapies out there, but oh my God, we've tried them all. And some, you know, are really brilliant and some are just off the wall. Um, another thing that autistic people, um, they, so in a, in a, a hand, in a majority or in a plural, plural, 
flu, one is plurality. it plurality of people, there are what they call comorbidities. So you, you have autism and you have anxiety and OCD, mm-hmm. obsessive, yeah. which my daughter has. Right. Some people have autism and they're very de- developmentally delayed. Now, my, sister, my, my daughter does have learning issues. She has some fine motor issues and she does have some, you know, it affects her learning, but she's not... Um, but but then she's really advanced in certain ways. Mm-hmm. She's really, you know, she's a really advanced reader and she plays flute and, you know. And what they say is your skills are scattered. Mm-hmm. So um, you might have someone who's nonverbal but can do puzzles, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So there's, it's it's very hard to, they're, you know, hard to know how do you, how do you measure intelligence? How do you measure value? So, yeah, and I'm thinking that maybe, you know, your question, Daniel, about um, if you if you meet somebody on the spectrum, maybe how do you connect with them would be what I'm hearing you say is that you can join in one of their interests as a, as a good way. Absolutely. And also... And to drop the, you know, expectation that they're going to be interested absolutely. in you. Absolutely. Right, and right, and, right. and my, I tell people this, too, that... Um, you know, she's nervous when she meets you. So mm-hmm. she'll ask, like, if someone's older, she'll say, are you a grandma? Or she'll say, what kind of car do you have? Um, do you have any pets? What's your favorite bird? You know, she's got her list of, mm-hmm. kind of the way we go, hi, how are you? What exactly. do you do? You know, right. right, where do you live? Introductory statements. Right, so she has questions. that. And yeah. then you might say, you might have a car that she's really interested in. And so she'll say, what year is it? What model? Does it have this? And then you can say something like, you, you answer her questions, but then you take that and you go, you know, the reason I got into these cars, you know, the reason I have this car is because my dad had a car like that. Then she might say, what's your dad's name? So you open up, instead of just answering her questions, mm-hmm. you answer it and then you share something personal mm-hmm. about yourself. And she'll pick up on it. Oh, you have a brother? Oh, you have a second car? What was your car before this? Why'd you get rid of that car? And then mm-hmm. you could say, oh, you know, I drove that. I took a trip to, I took a cross-country trip with that car and I went, did you, what state did you go to? You know, and that, so then, and then you can slowly um, gear the conversation back to then asking her something mm-hmm. about cars. Mm-hmm. So that's with someone like Maris who yeah. is able to do that. Yeah. Another thing is to not expect them to look look at you, and it doesn't mean they're not listening. Mm-hmm. So if they're looking down at the ground, they're actually listening, and they can't, yeah. you know. And there used to be this thing of forcing um, people to, you know, that you have to. And that I do that with Maris now because um, I would say, Maris, I want to gaze into your eyes because she's these beautiful green eyes, mm-hmm. and she's learned to do that and relax. You know, I worked with her on breathing. She likes yoga and stuff Mm. like that. So you can do that as you get to know them. Mm -hmm. But they generally won't look at you. And they generally will want uh, not you to to not be so close to you. Mm -hmm. A a lot of them are. But um, if you just act relaxed around them, like there's there's a couple of people at Sweetwater. They're not very verbal. But um, like one of her roommates, who's an incredible artist, and I just adore her. And I just went in one day and I said... I want a hug. And her mom said, oh, she doesn't hug. And I said, I don't care. I really love you and I want a hug. And so the first time, you know, we just touched 
gosh. Well, now I'm getting full body hugs. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, and I wasn't going to, you know, I I was watching it. But now when I come in, she runs over Mm -hmm. to give me a hug. And then now I've gotten, she and my daughter, they've become, you know, Mm -hmm. to hug each other. So you just, you know, what I tell people is don't be afraid. They're people, Mm -hmm. you know observe, you know, and, and also don't, don't be afraid of just, just being in their, in their presence Mm -hmm. and watching them Mm -hmm. and then saying one thing and just being next to them. Um, it, it is uncomfortable, but they're, they're, you know, they're just people, you know, and I'm still learning, you know, and because Maris is nothing like the other girls in her house, Mm -hmm. but I'm starting to see, you know, we, we, we mothers, you know, we parents get together and we joke about, oh God, I hate when they do that, you know, and because they all have these similar autistic traits, but some are really verbal, some are not. So, and I'm sure you have met autistic people. I mean, because they're everywhere. Um, but it's, a lot of them, um, and they used to say autistic people don't really want to get close. Oh, that's just not true at all. They have the same emotions. And, you know, they, there used to just be a lot of stereotypes misinformation. about mm-hmm. misinformation yeah. or they can't lie or they can't be deceptive. Mm-hmm. My daughter lies all the time. <laughs> you know, but she's not a good liar. Right, sure. She'll look like this. She doesn't know she's giving it away. Because, yeah. you know, we've learned all these ways to conceal our emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's all over her face. Uh-huh. And, it's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for that. that My is, pleasure. Yeah. I thank you for asking. Of course. Mm-hmm. So I I know that you opened for Abby Lincoln. Yes. Um, and Phoebe Snow in Ann Arbor. Yes, yes years so, ago. Yeah, so was that like after college? Because you went to school in, at Michigan. Yes. Was it and after college? To say a little bit about what that was like. So it was fantastic. How it happened? Like how you got oh, the gig? Oh, so I, I can't remember. I might have been in college or newly graduated because I stayed in Ann Arbor for many, many, many years after I graduated, so I can't really. But I worked with, um, I, I was in three different groups or four different groups because I was in a Javanese gamelan too. Um, I worked with a singer-songwriter that I'd mentioned before. She was a folk singer. Mm-hmm. And I met her in college. I met her in a women's studies class. And then she, I heard her sing at a restaurant and she was just accompanying herself on guitar. And I said, you know, I love your songs. And they were all originals. And I said, if you ever, you know, want piano accompaniment. She said, well, actually, I would love that. I love the piano. So we got together and then, boom, we were, you know, doing stuff all the time. So there was an uh, year, uh, annual Ann Arbor Folk Festival that was a big festival of folk artists from across the country and the world held in one of the large auditoriums. And there was also, uh, there is still a, a coffee house called The Ark in mm-hmm. Ann Arbor, which is famous. And when people tour, it's one of their stops mm-hmm. when they're in Ann Arbor. It's just um, started as... A cough, like literally a folk house with a beautiful old house. And then they just got so uh, popular, they moved to a bigger house and then they moved to something bigger. So it's really, and it was run by this folky family from, you know, and then they retired and their daughter, who's, you know, probably in her mid 30s or 40s, I don't know, she took it over. And I used to perform at the Ark all the time and with, with this gal, Anne. And at the Ann Arbor, uh, Folk Festival, which was a three-day huge deal. They had, you know, Phoebe Snow and all these people. And they asked... We, we were starting to get a following. Mm-hmm. 
um, when we did concerts because we, we just did. And um, they asked us if we wanted to open for Phoebe Snow at the Folk Festival. And it was one of the, and it, it's, it's and it, totally professional stage sound thing. So we did. Mm. And um, she's one, I just love her. And we hung out backstage and she was just as lovely as can be. And um, I mean, I didn't have an extensive connection with her, but um, I just remember she was this really warm person and she had this fabulous food spread in her <laughs> dressing room and invited <laughs> us in. And um, so that was that. It was, it was really great. And I got to meet a number of folk artists, Claudia Schmidt and David. Uh, oh, I mean, all the famous folky people. So it was really fun to kind of go to the after parties. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So that was really great. I, it was really wonderful. And we did, I think we did that a couple of times. And then... I was in a jazz duo with another woman, the woman I was telling you about who's a um, music therapist, and there was a jazz competition that Eastern Michigan University, which was down the road from Ann Arbor, uh, would had a, a great radio jazz station called WEMU, and they had a jazz competition every year. And if you won this competition, you were guaranteed bookings, like in Detroit and around. So Kathy and I made a cassette tape. We just, you know, in my living room made a cassette and we entered it and we won best duo, which cool. I had just started playing jazz. I really didn't, you know, I learned a couple Duke Ellington tunes and a Lauren Iro tune. So all of a sudden we, we had gigs, nice. you know, and it was like, oh my God. But <laughs> it was really, you know, so we were kind of learning on the job. And then a few years into it, um, they had a great jazz, uh, program at the university and I maybe he worked at the radio station and he said you know we need someone to open for Abby Lincoln that we're bringing to the Michigan ballroom and somehow we got the gig wow. and um that was extraordinary because we were hanging out in the bathroom putting on our mascara together and I had just adored her and she was again as gracious and down to earth mm. I mean she was regular people um and of course, we were nervous as heck, you know, because it was on a big stage. But um, I don't even remember that performance. I think it went really well, but mm. I think it was one of those, it just happened. Yeah. And then wow. we got to hang out a little bit with her afterwards. So it was, it was, a th it was an absolute thrill. Mm. It was an absolute thrill. What a life you have lived. <laughs> you know, now that I tell these stories, I think, oh, that's not too bad. No, you know, it's usually shabby, just I'm yeah. going about my life. I'm yeah, not thinking, hey, what a life, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, these are interesting reflective times yes. for our guests, too. It's really yeah. cool to watch. Yeah, that. thank you. Yeah, it yeah. is. I mean, because no one usually asks these kinds, you know, yeah. you're, you're, you're sitting somewhere and you talk about one little episode in your Literally. life or... Yeah. Mm -hmm that day or that week or it's true that's true yeah well um we do usually do you want to ask the question yeah yeah um, the question we ask a lot of the guests is if you had a musical fantasy of some sort you know if you could do anything at all related to music in some fashion what might that be for you what a great question there's probably more than one thing oh, yeah i imagine <laughs> I, wow. Um, well, I certainly want to do another CD, and that's not, I know that's not 
fantasy fantasy. I would love to compose a movie score someday. I've always wanted to do that um, because I have a couple of compositions that I think would be great Mm -hmm. um, for a movie score. Okay, what do you imagine the movie to be like? Oh. What's your composition like, I guess, is the the question. I have to say I'm really big into the kind of the melancholy Mm. um, mood music or music that's... um, Oh, okay, I've always wanted to make... Okay, this is my total fantasy. A documentary road trip movie with me and my band being on the road Mm -hmm. with the scenery, kind of the Mm -hmm. Paul Simon, Mm -hmm. all gone to look for America. Yeah, because I think when I was a kid, I just, there was something so deep and romantic and, and spiritual about road trips. I still feel that way where you're just driving through different, different places, the world and scenery and people and times of day and desert and forest Mm. and ocean and mountains and having music being with that, with a a narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Awesome. I don't it think I've out. ever shared that with anybody. Well, now the whole world knows. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You'd have heard it first here. Well, right? I'm ready to do it. I don't know yeah. what the any any of thing else, but I'm so into that. Cool. Thank you, Stephanie. Perfect. Awesome. Well, perhaps that's a good note to um, to end on here. Mm-hmm. This has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to have yes. you here. We're just thrilled. You Thank you so much, both of you. What great questions and <laughs> so appreciate. It wasn't very hard. Your story is remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. I was telling my husband I'm, I'm doing this podcast. I said, I'm not really sure. And he goes, oh, well, you're not going to have any problems. Yeah, he knows. <laughs> Just give you a microphone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. That's amazing. Well, thanks for being here, Stephanie. I appreciate you being here. And thanks, listeners, again for tuning in. Um, if you have any movies and need a composer, go ahead and hit up Stephanie and see if she's got the right stuff for you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. And yeah, and um, again, thank you for listening. Uh, and we love um, comments and people, if you have anything, a question or a comment or any feedback, anything that you're enjoying about the podcast or any kind of a constructive feedback, we'd love to know that too. Um, we will answer all of your, we'll respond to all your comments and subscribe if you're into our podcast mm-hmm. and spread the word. Mm-hmm. And we hope that you have some enjoyable, musical, meaningful musical conversations <laughs> of your own soon. Till next time. Till next time. Bye. See you guys. Bye.